everyone, it's Lou Rosenfeld. I am very happy to welcome you to the latest Rosenfeld Review podcast, especially as I have my old friend and self-described old fart, Jared Spool, who's like one of the people who's been in the field longer than I have, which is really saying something. Hi, Jared. Hi. Uh, uh, yes, I remember you walking up to me uh, uh, at a conference saying, I want to get into this field and and and... I want, I want to introduce the world to information architecture. And I thought, what the hell is information architecture? That's right. I remember that. And, and, and I, these, you, had, you had a beard and I probably didn't. Now we've, yes, that's right. That's right. We've reversed. That's right. <laughs> uh, you know, this is like, here, you're going to say something really stupid to the uh, listeners. If you don't know Jared, <laughs> of course you know Jared, but I'll just say anyway. Uh, that, that whole thing about the sheep isn't true. <laughs> I mean, it happened, but but I wasn't really let's there. Not, let's not go there. We'll just say that uh, okay. he is the founder of uh, User Interface Engineering, which is coming up, if I can say, on its 30th anniversary. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We've, we've merged now with Center Center, so we are officially Center Center UIE. And uh, you are the co-founder of Center Center with uh, Leslie Jensen Inman. Mm -hmm. uh, why don't I let you explain what Center Center is? Uh, Center Center uh, is the UX design school in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And we, with the UIE side, we have now a whole professional development thing that, that brings us together. So we are, we are basically full service professional development on UX design for organizations and individuals. So uh, yet another phase in your illustrious career, you're now uh, reinventing or maybe arguably inventing UX education. Yeah, we have the first real sort of solid UX curriculum that isn't um, sort of eight week intensive and isn't a program that's layered on top of a master's of art or a bachelor's of industrial design or which is ha or a psychology program. Uh, it is UX design from start to finish intended to create active practitioner practitioners. It is, it has Leslie's background. She got her doctorate in designing innovative education programs to teach design uh, for industry. So she's like the perfect person to partner on the project with. And her, her work, I've learned so much about the latest theories and experience-based learning and all the methods for uh, bringing education uh, up a notch so that students emerge actually having the skills versus just having the knowledge, but not really having the skills. Well, I'm really grateful for, for what you guys are doing with Center Center and, and especially that you're not promising your graduates a job five seconds after completion, although they probably will be getting jobs. Yeah, no, we, we work very hard on the, on the job stuff. In fact, that's like this, our first uh, cohort of students, the first cl class of students will graduate in October this year. They are all thinking about their jobs. So we are now working with companies who might want to hire them to see about, we, we've created this thing called a residency program, which is a six week embedded program, uh, more like a contracting gig than a internship with the intent of the students getting a chance to actually see what it's like to work inside a company and, and be part of that. 
But I, I guess my point is that you're, you're, you're actually working to help your students get into the, the, the workplace rather than making some sort of a bold claim that it's going to happen simply because they completed your program, which I won't name any names, but we know that there's, there's plenty of programs that, that uh, if they don't say it outright, they certainly infer that. Yeah, no, we've been we've been trying real hard to be transparent about everything we do. That's a that's a core principle about us. So, you know, we tell the students what's going to be easy and what's going to be hard. And we the job stuff, we say, look, it's it's going to be hard. There are lots of jobs out there, but you're going to have to really prove yourself. We might be able to make an introduction, but if you can't do the work, it's it's not going to go anywhere. Right. Well, speaking about the work. Um, one of the, the, the real challenges that students and really everyone uh, in our field, even here in 2018, still faces is making a case for the, the value of design. Um, it, when we do our user research at Roseville Media, we're, we're always a little surprised at how much it comes up because we work um, with a lot of people uh, who are fairly senior. Uh, they may be leaders or managers of, of substantial design organizations and teams. And even in those cases, we still see them struggling with this issue. Uh, it's not just getting uh, UX established, but it's getting UX into the DNA of organizations in many cases so that uh, all the good work you may have done, and um, uh, we've seen this at a bunch of companies, suddenly gets slashed out of existence because who knows, maybe an activist uh, uh, shareholder gets involved and starts slashing a company left and right, or there's a number of other conditions, a new CEO, who knows? We're, we're, we still have organizations where you think design is, is very well established and um, you find that it's actually not, it's actually more precarious than you realize. So for that reason, uh, Roosevelt Media has put together a one-day virtual conference taking place on July 31st called The Business Case for Design, and the URL is case4.design. That's awesome. I love that. Isn't that a great, oh, you mean the URL or the idea? Just the idea. I think you should put together this conference. Can I be part of it? Just so, as a matter of fact, uh, my people talk to your people and you're already the closing keynote, Jerry. Oh, that's awesome. Glad you told me because that's good news. It's good news. <laughs> You know, so we've got a, a, an interesting lineup. I mean, the, the, the opener is a guy named uh, Deresh Pandey, who's, um, like me, a, a doctoral program dropout, except he dropped out of a computer science program uh, and um, went on to uh, get involved in a number of companies before founding, a, I'll probably mispronounce it, Nutanix. Nutanix? I think it's Nutanix. Mm. Uh, they are a very successful company founded by an engineer, uh, that is driven by design. He's the CEO, obviously. And so we're going to learn about uh, a CEO's perspective on the value of design. Again, a non-designer CEO. And that's going to be a, a really interesting perspective. And, and then we're going to hear from uh, a variety of people with really different perspectives on this, this issue, the business case. Uh, we have Jeff Sauro, uh, we have J.D. Buckley, we have uh, Kerry Bodine and Nathan Shedroff, uh, all who look at this from very different directions. And then Jared is going to talk a little bit about, um, or not a little bit, we're going to talk a little bit about his talk, which is about the uh, UX tipping point. 
And uh, what does that mean, Jerry? What is, uh, why, why do we need a UX tipping point? And, and, uh, well, we don't need it. It, it just happens, right? Um, but does it just happen? It's, it's a, well, I mean, it's, it's a point. It's a point in the maturity that, that happens. We noticed when we, were, when we were studying companies that there was uh, something distinct about the companies that were most what, we, what we've come to call uh, design mature, uh, UX design mature, which are companies that, that understand uh, design at, at their most fluid point, the most mature point, they, they understand design to be very much a core part of their success. They think design is competitive. They, they understand that design is, is key. And, you know, you can see these companies around the world. Some of them are in tech like Apple. Some of them are out of tech like Disney per se or Cirque du Soleil or Tesla to some extent. These are organizations where, where the experience of the customer, the experience of the user is very much a core value and something for which decisions are made. And when, when you have a choice of taking option A or option B, the option that gets you better experiences for the customer is the option they will default to. That type of, of maturity has this moment, and the, and the moment comes when the, a company which previously would hold back a product if it was technically uh, flawed or if the business requirements weren't met. But if those things were fine, but the design wasn't a very good experience, they'd go ahead and ship it anyways. And that's sort of the moment before the tipping point. And the moment after the tipping point is if the technology works great and the business requirements are met just fine, the user has a great, a great experience, they'll ship it. Uh, but if the user doesn't have a great experience, they'll hold that product back. And they'll say, That's, this isn't designed well enough. Um, the story I, I've told a lot is, if you go back to the Steve Jobs days, whenever there was an Apple keynote, the, uh, if you look at the devices, you can go back to the early iPods, certainly the iPhone, uh, every product that, that Steve Jobs ever demoed in, in one of the keynotes. Um, if it had a clock, the clock was always set to 9.41 a.m. And it's a little detail, and you, you wouldn't pick it up. If you went and looked at Apple ads, you would notice that on all the Apple ads, the time is set to 9.41. And the reason for that is that uh, the keynotes all start at 9 o'clock Pacific time. And they go for about an hour. And about 9.41 was that, wait, there's one more thing moment, when they would roll out the new thing, the thing that everybody was waiting for, the thing that, that, that is the thing that everyone will talk about in the keynote. And it happens sometime between 9.40 and 9.45. Well, 
there's a bigger story to this, which uh, I learned about from uh, various friends that both you and I have who, who used to work on the Apple website. And it turns out that, that the uh, Apple website uh, goes down, or at least in those days, it would, it would turn off at uh, when the keynote started and would come up right after that big announcement. And in that 45 minute period, the entire site was upgraded to contain the new products. Up until that moment, there was no evidence that the products existed. And then they would basically hit a switch and roll out a website, which you know would spike in traffic insanely, right? So talk about a DevOps issue, right? It would, it would spike incredibly with the um with this new traffic and it turns out learning talking to these folks who used to have to work on that website they would be told you know in those days we never knew when the keynotes were coming and they would be told eight ten weeks in advance of a keynote hey there's a keynote coming and uh uh you are no longer allowed to leave the building Right, you have to stay here and get this website ready for this massive switch, and it would be at that point that they learn about whatever new products are going to show up. But it would also be at that point that that the products weren't completely decided on. Right, there would be products that would be. We're going to announce this product, you know, in eight weeks from now. That by the time the keynote rolls around, they have decided it's not ready. And it has to have any trace and evidence of it pulled from the site. Right. And, um, uh, and more to the point, uh, that apparently happened up till about 11 o'clock, midnight, 1 a.m., the night before the keynote. is sort of the latest a product had ever been pulled and they have to sort of undo all the evidence. Whoops. I almost dropped my water. Uh, uh, they have to undo. I'm getting so excited here. They have to undo all the evidence that, um, that that thing ever existed because they're going to announce it in a future release. And, and uh, that's, that's how they're going to go. And so, so it's, it's that, sequence right so apple at that time was was beyond that tipping point if the user experience was not where the company exec steve jobs and others thought it needed to be they would pull a product at the last minute and not mention it in the keynote and um that's the tipping point right that's that's the 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 i mean think of how expensive that is to have all of that ready and then to decide, no, we have to erase all traces of it. But think of how expensive it is to not do that in the long run. And that's really what they understood. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, we'll fix it in the next release becomes the mantra, right? You know, at, at, at some point, I, th I think that was Microsoft's trademark. Was, so, you know. <laughs> so in your research, what patterns have you seen that suggest a company is about to move across that line to, uh, and, and reach the tipping point? Is it a horribly uh, expensive, painful product release that, that was not ready? Or was it a is it regime change? Is it something else? 
Oh, it can be any number of things, but it's, it's actually in many cases, a sequence of, of very small events. It's an evolutionary process. And what it is, is an overtime realization that every time you put the users and the designs you create for the users at the center of the focus, you have a competitive edge that you don't have when you just focus on the traditional drivers of competition, which is having the lowest price or being first to market or having some list of features that's better than everybody else's list of features. Uh, and you, you start to compete on having great design. Remember, you know, when the, when the iPhone came out, it had substantially less features than other products of its, of its ilk, you know, uh, about four months before the iPhone was announced, Nokia launched the, the N95, which was this amazing phone. Uh, it had the highest resolution video camera that had ever been seen. It had this, you know, sort of thing where you could flip it out and hold it like a video camera, uh, like an old Kodak uh, movie camera. Uh, to take these really sharp, clear videos. It, could, it had a great speaker system. It had all these features. Uh, it could do all these different things. And the iPhone couldn't do video. The iPhone, uh, you couldn't text pictures. Uh, you, it didn't have cut and paste. It didn't, you know, you couldn't download apps. It didn't have any of the things that the N95 had. And yet, how many people, do you remember waking up at four in the morning to get the first N95? At some point, people stop buying things because they have better features. They buy things because they have better experiences. And it's at that moment that, that the company realizes we've got a competitive edge that nobody has. And one of the beauties of chasing design as a competitive edge is that you get into a market leadership position where your innovation is all around who the client is and who the customer is and what they need and what they're about. If you know more about your customers than your competitors do and you react to that information, you produce a product that they have to emulate and guess what you're trying to get to, whereas you know where you're trying to get. It, it's a completely different type of comp competitive uh, leadership. And so that's, that's how companies get there. So what about individual designers and researchers and so forth? Um, how can they help that along? Is it a, a matter of having good stories to tell, good framing or vocabulary to communicate the idea? And what, what, do, you, what do you see as the best way to arm the people who, for example, are going to be joining us for the conference on July 31st? Uh, well, First, those people have self-selected to be of an elite group, uh, the, the people who join us, because they, they are going to get insights from, how many speakers are there? Six, right? So they're going to get insights from five amazing speakers, and then I tag along at the end. Really, what we've been doing is, is working on helping those folks see themselves as design leaders. The fact is that anybody can design. And when you get into more maturity, everybody's designing. So every, everybody in every part of the organization is, is making, are making decisions that create better experiences for customers they're designing. 
So the people who have the formal title of design, their role shifts and their role shifts to, to being in a leadership position, to basically making sure that all those people make the right decisions. And making the right decisions isn't just understanding some basic principles of good design. Making the right decisions are, for instance, having a design system that lets you make good design the path of least resistance by choosing the right components out of the design system instead of inventing something that doesn't match the design system. Or making access to users really easy, being able to scale up uh, design and be able to really think about how, how do I get people the information they need to be able to make great decisions when I'm not in the room when the decision's being made. And, and this is a shift, right? A lot of people want that sort of seat at the table. And when they say, well, we, you know, that I want the seat at the table, it's because they think that if they're at the table at the right time, they'll be there when the important decision's being made. And in reality, the organizations that do this really well are able to make great decisions even when that person isn't at the table. No matter who's at the table, they make the right decision. And that means that you, you have to do a lot of design literacy and design fluency work. Everybody in the organization has to be literate and fluent. Well, uh, you know, I, I'm really glad you brought that up. I mean, when you were talking about design systems and scaling research, you're, you're, and I didn't, I didn't prompt you, you, you're actually talking about what we're covering at the, the, the Design Ops Summit in uh, New York, uh, November 7th through 9th. No way. Yes, way. Oh, wow. So you just plugged a, a different conference that we were producing. Thanks. Was, was I not supposed to plug that conference yet? No, it, it, it's okay. I'm okay. It's, it, I, you know, I didn't get to go last year. I only heard, like, amazing reports. Thank you. I appreciate um, that. Uh, I, would, I would like to be able to go someday. That, that would be awesome. I, I don't know how you, you've managed to, to tame and harness the power of the Maloof but you have done a fantastic job. <laughs> it, it's, um, you know, that's a, there's, there's a design ops, there's research ops, and there's Maloof ops. Yes. <laughs> hey, um, uh, you know what? Um, uh, I, I do want to remind people uh, that, that uh, Jared is a busy guy, first of all, so we should, we should wrap it up and that he will be speaking as the, the final of six speakers at the, Business Case for Design, that's case4.design, July 31st, virtual conference. And uh, um, if you can only show up for part of it, uh, that's good too, because the recordings of every session will be included in the price of your ticket. Jared, before we wrap up, anything you want to leave us with? Could be related to what we talked about or interesting person, interesting book, you, you name it. Love to hear what, uh, what's on your mind right now. Oh, I've been chasing down uh, the work of somebody who I, I think is pretty awesome, um, a guy named Simon Wardley. And he has this, this idea, which, is, which I've, I've come to realize is very important in terms of this design maturity stuff, which is that there's three types of, of folks in whenever there's a new space, a new thing, right? So technology in general, user experience design in particular, design ops might be uh, uh, a way to think about this. And he, he refers to them as, as pioneers, settlers, and town planners. Uh, 
and the pioneers come in and they 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 sort of map and define the territory right they're they're explorers they come in they have no idea where the boundaries are they have no idea what's possible or what what's valuable there and they're just sort of to some extent wandering about but they're they have to be brilliant people because it takes a lot to survive in that sort of uncharted world of of pioneering and then um uh but then there's a second phase of folks who come in and that's what Simon refers to as the settlers and the settlers take what the pioneers did and they start to figure out how to extract value from that area, right? How do you, how do you, what, what are the things that get value out? And they experiment a lot with, with pulling different techniques for pulling value out, trying to get different things to work in different ways. And by pulling that value out there, um, uh, they are, sort of defining what's possible to do. But at some point, people are like, okay, this is working. And that's when the town planners come. And the town planners, you know, the settlers have to be brilliant at what they do because they have to get all this value out. The pioneers have to be brilliant at what they do because they have to explore the space. The town planners also have to be brilliant at what they do because what they're thinking about is scale. They're, you know, they're the folks who are saying, okay, well, if, if we're actually going to build a town here, we need to think about roads. We need to think about growth for the future. We have to figure out where the schools go, where the firehouses go. We have to figure out, you know, where the street lamps go. We have to get electricity to every house. We have to figure out where the fire hydrants go. You know, they're thinking about all these things, right? And, and so, like, design ops, to me, is very much a town planning phase of of UX design in general, where, where you're now thinking about how do I scale these things? How, you know, design systems and research operations and, and all this stuff is, is really about, okay, we've been doing this stuff and every organization sort of does it differently and it's very ad hoc, but how do we actually start to systematize it? How do we make sure best practices are built in and, and all of those things? And, uh, I think that Simon's approach to this is br quite brilliant uh, and something that I've been thinking about a lot. And if you just Google Simon Wardley, W-A-R-D-L-E-Y, yeah, Pioneer Settlers Town Planners, and you will get to a seminal article on this. And then he's got a bunch of talks. His talks are always entertaining. Yeah, I, I think I think he's he's on to something. I'm, I'm like his well, biggest fan. Great. I, I'm in the middle of... Uh reading the famous uh, book, The Power Broker, the biography of Robert Moses. And oh, yeah, yeah. Kind of starts as a planner and then uh, I think very quickly pivoted it to the, uh, the next phase, which is a uh, politician and power monger. I guess maybe uh, some of us will be uh, doing that in a few years. But in the meantime, let's <laughs> enjoy uh, this phase. And, and Jared, great to have you uh, join us on the show. Jared Spool, thanks so much. Uh, okay. Well, thank you. Uh, uh, this has been absolutely a joy. And what time should I, I be doing that thing on the 31st? Four o'clock? Four o'clock? Is that when I, Okay, I've got it in my calendar now. I'm going to do that. <laughs> no, wait, 4 p.m. Anyway, we'll see you on July 31st. Take care. July 31st, yes. Take care. Yeah.